It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now... Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, hey, good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday. We're live, and whether you're listening live or maybe you're tuning in later on after the fact through one of the podcast streams that we have, thank you so much for being here. And in case you're new to this, in case you don't remember why this show exists, other than just for me to talk to cool people, it's because I have spent most of my adult life asking people who I think are smart, people who I want to learn from, people who I think are successful, what their tricks are, what is it they do, what are the things they think about, what's important to them, and also importantly, what's not important to them. And to learn from that and to figure out how I start off as how I could grow, how my company could grow, how my people could grow. And it's kind of turned into this little obsession where I love talking to very smart people. And Today is, is, is one of our best shows. I, I'm already going to call it. I have two people that I've learned so much from. Um, unless they don't show up or just start speaking in a language I don't understand, I think it's going to be a great show. So, um, you know, a lot of these stories uh, were put in my first book, The Power of Company Culture. You can get that wherever you buy books online. And um, a lot of the, the stories that we've, we've really accumulated over the last couple of years will go into the new book, Remote Work, which is on pre-sale on Amazon as well. Now, Talent Talk is live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. But as I mentioned, most of you have what few two, th two or three million downloads last year through iHeartRadio, through iTunes, through Stitcher, through Spotify. So wherever you like to listen to your podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a show. Now, we do love live tweeting as well. So Angela, uh, my social media uh, guru, she'll be posting the best one-liners, links to books and uh, profiles. So at people G2 on uh, Twitter, or you can follow that hashtag talent talk to make sure that you can, if you're not somewhere where you can write things down, we're going to write it down for you. All right. My guest today on the show, uh, we have the, uh, uh, the keynote uh, and best-selling author and internationally top ranked conference keynoter, David Marquet of the intent-based leadership uh, international. And then we're going to bring on Kim Shepard, who I co-wrote my book with, uh, Remote Work, uh, and after the commercial break. And uh, as it should be probably noted a few times, Kim was actually my very first guest when I started this podcast many, many years ago. So we're looking forward to catching up with her. But let's go ahead and bring David into the show. Welcome back, sir. Hey, Chris, how you doing? And yeah, conference keynote, or how's that going? <laughs> I am not... I haven't gotten on an airplane. It's coming up on 365 days. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a year for me, but I did 70 trainings and keynotes virtually yeah. uh, since COVID. So both fun because I got to do more, but also totally depressing because I was stuck in my office. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you? If they don't know who you are, if they've been living under a rock, what's important for them to know about you and your books and the work that you do? Yeah, so uh, my quote claim to fame was I was a submarine commander who didn't know much about his own submarine. <laughs> the way I got there was because I was an expert and uh, I moved up to the ranks in the Navy and they said, oh, you're going to be a submarine commander. Of course, I was very excited. For 12 months, I went to, uh, I was prepared for one ship and the very last minute, they said, no, 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 you're going to go to the Santa Fe and the Santa Fe had the double problems of the worst morale and the worst performance. And the captain had just quit. So they needed a captain post haste. And they said, and I, but I was like, yeah, but it's, a, it's, it's, an, I've never been on that kind of, it's a new, it's not what I'm trying. They go, yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> and so I go out there and, 
and I realized very quickly that my my paradigm of leadership, which is the job of the leaders to make decisions, tell people what to do and get them to do it. That was the why I was being promoted. And, and I had a lot emotionally invested in that way of talking to people and how I vision visualize myself as a leader. That's not going to work. And I gave a bad order. Typically, when that happens, your head goes, oh, bad order, solution, give better orders. But when you, it's a whole nuclear submarine that you don't know, that's not a feasible solution. And so it's like, oh, bad order, solution, don't give orders. Don't be the person giving orders. Create a team that doesn't need, need you to ever give an order. And that was, that was the bargain that we struck up. And it was unlike anything that I'd ever uh, experienced. But it was so amazing, it was amazingly powerful. It was de-stressing for me in a huge, in, in some ways. It was stressful in some other ways. But it was amazingly relieving for the team. And we just did it all through language. We just, we didn't preach empowerment. We just said, hey, why don't you say it this way? And we started tweaking the language in all these different ways. And, and it seemed really minor. And people, when they saw, visited the submarine, it was like, seems kind of the same as but it seems totally different and right so i've become this sort of annoying zealot about the power of language well what's really fascinating is that you know you could have just in one one single moment been on that ship you intended and probably continued down your typical leadership style right and here this crazy thing happened for whatever reason with circumstances you could have never controlled. And here you are on a ship that's so totally different. And I don't know if you would call it as different as maybe knowing everything you need to know about a Harley Davidson. And next thing you know, you're in a Ferrari. Right. And so they're, they're totally different things. And, and not only that, you know, you're driving a Ferrari that if you'd make the wrong move could explode and, you know, kill everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, this is not, this is not the normal mistake based fear we have. And, you know, if I make a mistake of my job right now, I'm probably not going to kill anybody. No, no one's shooting at us right now. Right. Yeah. right. So you come with a different level of pressure, which I think really adds. And I have a lot of people who ask me this question because they're in environments, they're in companies where making a mistake will cost lives. So it could, is so, there's so much pressure there. It's not yeah. like, you know, geez, I sent someone the wrong proposal right? Or I didn't answer this question correctly to a client. I mean, these are, these are different settings, but I guess what I really love, so there was turn the ship around. And, and as you mentioned, the Santa Fe was the star of that book. And I think it was a great redemption story. And then in your new book, El Faro was the star leadership is language. Yeah. Uh, and, and so two ships, two stories, and yet for that ship, not such a happy ending uh, where, where a leader, I think you did a wonderful job of Kind of giving us two paths on the same kind of a story but a different outcome um maybe you could tell everyone a little bit about uh what is this language what is intent-based language what is this you know how do we sort of start to think about this in the in the real world for us uh, okay so um you guys all need to realize i was a math geek and an engineer so what the way i think about language is it's it's kind of formulaic. And my question was, are there structural patterns in the language of teams that are fragile and make mistakes, things like uh, airplane accidents or deep water horizon or people die, that kind of thing, versus teams that are adaptive and resilient and error have natural error correcting tendencies. My, now my hypothesis was there was, but I didn't know what those patterns would be. And so we started collecting all these transcripts of teams. Uh, the key is to have a transcript, not a summary or mm. a description of the meeting, but the actual words that were saying. So for example, we found two patterns. Number one, uh, and this is where the Alfaro comes in. Since ships also have black boxes like airplanes, but they're typically longer, there's more people involved. So the Alfaro, there's a 500 page transcript. Now Alfaro, I'll tell you the two things in a second, but the Alfaro left the coast of Florida in 2015, hurricane season, hurricane was coming. They knew it. They sailed into it. They sank. They all died. 33 people, bodies never recovered. Fortunately, we got the black box so we can learn from their mistakes. And people over and over again kind of have this, well, 
I would never make that mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, if you're thinking that, be careful. These are well-meaning, highly professional, highly trained people wanting to not, they they didn't want to die. Trust me on this one. And so, so what happens is, so we analyzed all these transcripts. We came up with two uh, patterns. And pattern number one is that the number of words that people say is to typically proportional to their salary. Hmm. So we had in our meeting, we sort of instinctively grant the highest paid person, the most airtime as human beings and the lowest paid person instinctively basically self censures themselves and they find it awkward or hard to speak up. And so there's this gradient in the, in the word count. And it turns out on Alfaro, the gradient was 100%. It was a pattern that was true 100% of the time when the captain was on the bridge. So there was captain, officer, crew member. The captain always said the most number of words, the officer, the next most, and the crew member, the third most, every time without fail. So the problem is this is a, this is a fragile pattern. The reason it's a fragile pattern is because we don't know what everybody knows. We only know, we know what the quote captain knows or the CEO knows, but that in piece of information that, that the quote junior people know isn't coming out on the table mm-hmm. that we blame them afterwards. We had an accident in the Navy several years ago where a, a submarine had a collision and some people died where the captain said, well, I didn't, you know, I wasn't told this kind of an excuse, but it's the structures of the meetings that we run result in this. So you can't dodge that responsibility. The the second pattern was that teams used doing words where they should have been using thinking words. And so we've parsed if you think about the verbs and the language and you line it up to our mental activity, we basically put them in two bins. Either it's, it's an act of doing. So I'm, I'm flying an airplane, I'm conducting an operation, I'm briefing a client, I'm coding, doing. It's doing benefits from precision and focus. I'm in the zone, I'm working. The verbs are active, I did, I reported, I, uh, completed and these kind of things. And, just, and this is like the red work, right? Yeah. So we call this, we code it as red work. So we call that red work. And then thinking words are t- like more creative words. We imagined, we created, we conjured up. And so, because these are, these are words, so we can actually make the words, the colors. And what we'll do with uh, clients is we'll look at their say job descriptions. And we'll say, well, how many, let's take a look at job descriptions uh, at this nuclear power plant. And what you typically see is there's a lot of doing words. Sometimes it's all doing words <laughs> in, in, in the low to middle ranks. Sometimes there's some thinking words near the top or maybe over in engineering where they're, they're doing some trying to create solutions. But you can look at these ratios. You can look at a job posting. You can look at an annual review. You can look at an annual report. And so as you're doing these things and you're thinking about your meetings, thinking of, uh, the problem is it's a mismatch because we're applying doing words when we want to be thinking and doing words tend to focus the brain like a spotlight, boom, and they exclude other perspectives. But in thinking, obviously we want broad perspective. We want to, hey, let's think about it different. Hey, what other ideas do we have? Oh, who sees it differently? Oh, who sees how this might go wrong? And the problem, and, and we don't, do it consciously. This is the key. We do it because we've inherited an overly biased toward doing language from the industrial revolution. And so it's about reducing, it's about focusing in that spotlight, reducing variability when where I really want is to embrace variability, embrace diversity in thinking. Now, doing words applied to doing situations are fine. Doing words applied, applied to thinking situations result in brittleness and the, and the more likelihood of having an error. So the more important the work is, the more consequential the, the mistake is, the more important it is to fix these two patterns. In a meeting, what you wanna do as a leader is not get your point across, 
it's to level the voice count so that the most junior person has basically said the same number of words as you have. It's the most basic thing to think about. It's no and more complicated than and that's that. Sy that's basically systematic, which I think is what I love about uh, the books and the work that you've done, is that it's great to tell people, well, don't, don't do so much of red or don't do so much of blue or to think about that. But then leaders go, well, how do I do that? Yeah. Right? Well, there's a system. Well, you can go back right now. Everyone's meetings are on Zoom. They could go back and have it transcribed by someone for very inexpensive. Actually, there's bots that will do it for you for nothing. Yep. And you could go back and analyze that, right? You could give yourself a goal. It's easy to take that system and say, are my meetings happening the way they should be happening? The other thing that I, I really liked, I think, from your first book was you had your leaders practice coming to you and delivering you bad news. And, and I remember we, we, we took that idea and we created what we call tsunami planning meetings in my organization. So all of my finite teams, all my teams that are exist forever, customer service, sales, all that, they come together once a month and they do a tsunami planning exercise, which is what would happen if, and it's a completely fake scenario, but they just once a month practice disagreeing, arguing, you know, pushing up against each other, Right. And it reinforces all the psychological safety. The leader can see, well, geez, why is Tom never talking? Why is Tom so quiet in this meeting? Right. How do I deal with that? Is that because Susie's a loudmouth or is that because Tom doesn't feel comfortable? Right. And and start to figure that out. Are there other ways that, you know, systematic things that managers and leaders can go back and really start to put into place right now that can help them? Yeah. Well, practicing is key. We'll say things in, and we'll say things like, yeah, okay, so it's okay to interrupt me. Uh, it's okay to raise your hand. But then, no, but then no one does that. Why? Because we didn't practice. It's okay for you to speak up. It's okay for someone to say no and stop the, pro stop the program in the middle of the program. Uh, everyone here is just, quote, empowered to stop the ship by just – but if you don't practice it, then it's meaningless. You might as well just save, save your um, – it's like telling guys on a, on a soccer team, everyone here is empowered to kick the ball into the net. Okay, great. Now let's go home. We're ready for the game. It's like, makes no sense. <laughs> so I like the idea with uh, doing the transcripts and looking afterwards, you can see the percentage that different people talked. And if you're the leader, what you want to do is, is see if you can do that and even it out. We have a formula for, for, you can reduce it to a single number, which parallels the Gini coefficient in the book that you can do, but you don't really need to do that. It turns out if you just ask people, hey, who, th who do you think spoke the most? Who do you think spoke the least? Uh, they're, they're pretty, we're pretty good. Uh, we, we, we are very sensitive to it because yeah. what we're sensitive to is people who are sort of out of the leave. Oh, that person kind of was like uppity. They talk too much. So um, that's what you want to do. Another thing, you need feedback because some of these patterns are so built in that you don't realize you're doing them. One pattern that I used to have is I would say, right. So I said, did it. So, uh, okay. So I've listened to the whole thing, blah, 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 blah. So uh, we're going to go North, right? Now, why did I say, right? I, think the reason I said that is because from the industrial age, I didn't really want dissent. I wanted compliance. Mm -hmm. And so right is just another, it's just, it's not a big nail, but it's another little nail in the coffin of you speaking up, right? In other words, you better not say no. What I really wanted to say was, so we made a decision, we're going to go north. We're going to evaluate it in half an hour or who sees what could go wrong with that or how could that go wrong or what uh, opposing views what's the opposite of whatever something like that you want to make the uh, make the disagreement side easy because socially it's already hard to do that but i wouldn't realize when i was doing it yeah so i needed somebody else to say that you just said right but you just said, it's annoying <laughs> <laughs> and you don't realize how bad you are right now I was also wanted to 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 make sure I understood you you're talking about evaluating you know the words that are being said and trying to get that group to as close to equal as possible. But does it 
also matter in this equation how much of that language is being sent to particular people, right? So if, if everyone talks equally, but essentially it was the boss talked a third of the time to his people, and then basically his, his or her people just talked back at him about the equal amount, but they weren't really ever talking to each other in the meeting, right? I find that that, that crosstalk between equals to be something that needs to be happening. Like, I, I don't always want it set to me so that yeah. I have to interpret it and send it back. Like, I'm okay if all of a sudden they start talking sideways and we got to stop and listen to them because now they've, they've picked up on something, right? So that, how, do we, how do we deal with that? Well, that's really good. And, and on the submarine, I was the node. Like, everything came up to me and, like, from engineering up that channel and then went from me down to operations. I said, well, how did you, why don't you just talk to the operations officer? Just... <laughs> And so in meetings, I, it's as simple as this. Where are your eyes? I, w- imagine we're not doing Zoom, but we're sitting around the table. And I would just look at people. If they're all looking at me, that's wrong. I, I would always say, talk to each other. So I would say, okay, we're all going to mm-hmm. give an, it's an op, weekly ops meeting. I'm just going to give an update. They would all looked at me. Captain, here's blah, blah, blah. I was like, stop. Talk to the team, talk to each other. Do not look, you can look at anyone but me. And, and those are the kind of patterns that then make it, these other things kind of happen more natural. I love that idea. I was just reading a uh, trillion dollar coach, the book by uh, Eric Schmidt and the guys at Google. About book, Bill, yeah. Yeah. Bill mm-hmm. Campbell and what, what he did out there in Silicon Valley. And one of the things that, that coach Campbell said to to one of them was, Stop worrying about making your boss happy. If your peers think you're doing a good job, then you're in good shape. Right. Uh, so it's that peer-to-peer connection. And I, I, and this is advice I wish I had done better with when I was in the Navy. It, it, submarine, submarine commanders were the worst. It's, I mean, first of all, we're all sort of isolated in our own little ship, and I was worried about not dying myself, that kind of thing. But I could have done a better job uh, with my peers, connecting with the peers, just that kind I, I of don't, thing. I don't know how I learned it, but uh, or or why I learned it at such a young age. But I remember being watching some college play or something that was Death of a Salesman, and that Willie Loman character just wanted to be liked. And I remember going, "He's doing it wrong. You're not supposed to want everyone to like you. You're supposed to do work that you know people will respect you, right? If you if you work for respect and not to be liked." there's a, such a small change, right? Yeah, if you're respected, then people are going to like you too. Everyone wants to be liked. But if you went around just trying to be liked by people, then you just it just doesn't come out the same way. So yeah, yeah it's, a, it's that subtle change. Yeah, and the focus is the peer group. Right. It's a much so. larger group to, to, much larger group of people to care about, right? And if they, if you can think of an entire group to, I guess have that respect for you. That's a lot different than just being political with your boss and trying to get that person and brown nosing them or whatever. I mean, that's not a long term. Yeah, we, we 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 see those people and we we don't like those people and we <laughs> all know that. And so those are the, I think that's kind of what Coach Campbell was arguing against. Like, okay, yeah, so your boss thinks you're okay, but everyone else thinks you're a jerk. Yeah, right. you're not going to be. It doesn't matter. You're not going to be successful. You're never going to be CEO because you just can't be like yeah. that. Like that. Well, we're almost out of time here. I hope people can check out your books, uh, your latest one, Leadership is Language. I, I think it was fantastic. And if anyone enjoys listening to books, I do suggest both of them on Audible because uh, you do a great job of, of telling the stories. Some authors do and some authors don't. In this case, you do a great job of, of narrating and I think it's fun to, to hear you talk through it. So how can people find out more about you and your work? What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, David Marquet. I think the best thing to do is go on YouTube and type in leadership nudges. Uh, so we put out leadership nudges. These are like one to two to maybe three minutes, but they're very short videos. And I just take one little tiny thing and I talk about it once or twice a week. And so there are now like 400 of these things on, on YouTube. So you can just look through there. We got some different playlists. We have We interview some of our uh, the clients that we work with and they're telling stories about how it's worked in the workplace and that kind of thing. So that's kind of your, just, just, just your overview. Of course, we have a website, davidmarquet.com and our 
our program's called Intent-Based Leadership. So if you Google that, and we try and have, be pretty active with on, on uh, LinkedIn with the Intent-Based Leadership Institute page on LinkedIn. Oh, fantastic. And those nudges are great. So I, that's a great place for someone to start. Uh, I think you should read the books, but if even if you don't have time for that, those, little, those easy videos are fun ways to interact with the content. So David, thank you so much for being on the show, always being a great support. And we'd love to have you come back and keep talking about more whenever you're ready. Cheers, Chris. Thanks, listeners. Be good. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break and bring in my second guest, Kim Shepard. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my last guest and want to catch him, uh, make sure you subscribe. Go to TalentTalkRadio.com, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeart, wherever you find your podcasts, we're there. You can subscribe and never miss an episode. All right, I am really excited to bring in my next guest. And don't forget, we will be live tweeting as we go along. So follow at PeopleG2 or the hashtag Talent Talk on Twitter. And you can ask a question. You can give us suggestions. You can argue with us. But most importantly, we put all the best one-liners, links to books and, and uh, profiles there in case you don't have time to write it down as you're listening. All right, let's go ahead and bring in my next guest. We have a retired CEO and, and chairwoman, mentor and co-author with me on my new book, uh, Remote Work as well as one of my favorite people in the whole world. Kim Shepard, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a while. It has been a while. I think this is maybe your third time on. You were my very first guest ever when I started this podcast. Who knew millions of downloads later we would be here? Uh, and, and so much has happened with you, I think, even since the last time you were on. But uh, what, so what have, what have you been up to? What, what should people know about you? If they don't know who you are and they're listening right now, what should they know about Kim Shepard? <laughs> in a word she's a little <laughs> <laughs> um you know i had a, a a company you and i have been bouncing around each other for about a decade now in the same ceo roundtable and i had a company that was a high volume recruitment firm and uh, after 18 years was lucky enough to sell it and it was a good sale about a year and a half ago stayed with it for six months then couldn't watch people raise my children anymore we had about 120 right. employees. So I backed out and and then I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do because I hadn't really embraced the concept of retirement. So I spent six months and went to uh, 47 concerts in six months. <laughs> I remember that. I, I was jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and then you and I got together on this project, which I absolutely love. Yeah. So let's, let, let's talk about this. Uh, maybe it might be interesting for people to kind of Listen through this, uh, you and I, uh, I guess just sort of, I don't remember exactly what the, what, what the pinpoint, you know, thing was, but we decided we were going to maybe go write a book and the publisher said, sure, tell us what you want to write about. And we thought, well, what we're good at is remote work. Um, and so we decided to do a book on remote before the pandemic even happened. Right. Um, we we're trailblazers before we even knew it. Uh, and then the pandemic happened, of course, and everything changed. But maybe kind of give everyone, uh, maybe what, what was what was that process like? What was the beginning part of that like, uh, you know, and thinking about how we were going to possibly tell everyone how, you know, how to, how to have a remote company? Well, you know, backing up even before then, I think you and I got excited. The publisher of your last book, Corporate Culture, came to you and said, write another one. And he said, can I write it with Kim? And yeah. you and I said, you know, we took a walk in Laguna Beach. We said, what, what the heck is it going to be about? 
And we both knew that we wanted to be something that could help and that we were passionate about and maybe perhaps a little bit like you said, trailblazers on. And so remote work was the natural thing. But when we first started out, we kind of just thought it was going to be, you know, hey, if you're thinking about, if you ever think about going remote, you know, this is a little guidebook for you to do it. And then the pandemic hit and it took on a life of its own and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And part of it wrote itself just based on the horror stories that we were hearing and the potholes that were being created that you and I had maneuvered around in the past. Yeah, it was really fascinating for me to watch the evolution and the change inside the remote community because, you know, for years I was offering up with all the speeches that I did, 80% of them were around culture and engagement, maybe 20% were around remote work. But it was very few and far between that someone really wanted me to talk about remote work. It was a very specialized thing to a specialized group. And then the pandemic hits and I, I, I did like 70 talks right. uh, and trainings for companies. They were all of a sudden, you know, everyone's doing it. And this is now the thing that I talk about. And, you know, culture is now at 20%, remote's at 80%. Um, so, you know, you, you, I, I know the answer to this, but I think it'd be interesting for people to hear. What do you think is going to be, you know, the long-term impacts for remote work? Let's just say we all get vaccinated, COVID magically disappears. What is, what does remote work then look like, do you think, for the average company? Well, there's a new normal now, period, in our lives, in our, in our wardrobes, in our timing, in our eating habits, every everything that we do and have done in the past has been altered in some way. Even if you're still going into an office, you've got a ton of friends that aren't. If you are not, if you're working from home, you had to either create a, a workspace or you know kick a child out of a room and create an office. Um, and I, I really think that it's changed the work dynamic forever. And I want to just back up for a second because I took my company remote in 2002 on the heels of um, 9-11. And every time I would give a speech or interact with a client, I had to justify that I was an actual real company. Yes, we have people in six countries and 34 states, but it's a legitimate company. It's We really are real. And I always had to get, off, get over that hurdle. And now looking at the future, um, whether someone likes working from home or not, they now have an option that they didn't have before. Before they had to request, it started with, can we do casual Fridays? And then that became the thing. Can we wear jeans on casual Fridays? And that became the thing. Can I work from home on Friday, one day a week? And that started to infiltrate a little bit. And then everyone was sent home overnight. And no one had a clue what to do with them or what to do with themselves. Yeah, and we started in 2009 as a result of the recession, purely based on economic reasons. I just wanted to keep my people and our lease just happened to be coming up. So I sent everybody home so we could save money. And then we went, oh, this is way better. I like working this way. And within two weeks of us doing that, every employee had called me and said, whatever gruff I gave you, I'm so sorry. This is the best thing we've ever done. I love working from home. And I, for a while, I thought, well, maybe that's just our type of work. Maybe that's just how we are, uh, that we liked working this way. But I know that my people and my me especially, I love my deep focus time. I love not being interrupted. I love eliminating all the stupid, you know, every time someone walked by my office, they wanted to chit chat. Sure. I don't even know if they really wanted to chit chat, but I was the boss. So they felt like they had to chit chat because they were walking by my office. Oh, how's the kids? What's it? I spent half of my day chit chatting about things I could care less about and that my employees probably cared less about. Send us home. Now we have real conversations when we need to have them. And then I leave them alone to get their work done in a meaningful way that no commutes and no traffic and you know, no gas and none of that stuff, right? They get to eat healthy food because they're at home. They're not getting takeout. There's no donuts in the conference room. All of these like little things. I think that's what's going to stick for people once COVID goes away and the kids go back to school and some people's spouses or different people in the house maybe go back somewhat, right? And now they can actually think. They're not being a part-time teacher and a part-time employee. They're being a full-time employee and their kids are at school or whatever, 
they're going to find that this is pretty awesome. Well, what um, it did, Chris, is it took away dilemmas that have been large dilemmas in our life. For the yeah. past 30 years, we've been questing for work-life balance. Well, it, and for time management, and for trust your employees, trust me. You know, you think about it, I don't have to put on mascara, get in my car, you know, get dressed up, commute to work, commute home, you know, do the do the, the initial engagement when you get into the office. From a time management point of view, it's amazing. But what it's really done is broken down walls of things people have been questioning for forever. Work-life balance, you have to have it now. Um, tr being trusted, they have to trust you now. It breaks down the hierarchy in companies where, you know, just I, two years ago, a person would have to request permission to take their son to the dentist. May I have an hour off? Now, we're, we're, what we're managing are outcomes. We don't care. We don't care where you're working from or what, what you're working in or what you're wearing or what you're doing. All we care about is your output, period. From a, from yeah. a company point of view. Yeah. Well, and the work-life balance thing I love and the trusting your employees thing I love, it's a great point because we said that, and yet if someone left at two o'clock to go take their kid to the doctor, you had to worry about, oh, just what do people think about me? And then people are judging. And there was that whole messy, gross thing that's happening right, right at work. Yeah. If she can do it, I can do it. Why can't I do that? Like, right. You know, it's Instead... Work-life balance, take off at two, go take your kid to the doctor, come back and you can work. And if that, if you have work to do and you're just going to work a little bit later that day, then great. Right. All you, I care about as the boss is, did you get your work done? Did you do the things that I hired you to do? When you did them, I don't care. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, in our book, we talk about Jedis. So we're used to hearing A players. Well, A players usually is a stigma attached to how good are you in your current job? How good right. were you in your last job? The concept of Jedi is Jedis are awesome people. They were Jedis at age five and age 12 and age 22. A Jedi is a Jedi. What the remote process, when properly structured, it does is it attracts Jedis. Because a Jedi, don't look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm producing. Don't look at how I'm doing it. Look what I'm producing. Right. So the remote model... Going back to your, your original question about what do I see the future of remote work being, and this is going to sound really crass, and it's only my opinion, but the Jedis are going to embrace it, and they're going to become more Jedi-like, and the non-Jedis are going to float back to the office where they're hidden and, and protected. Mm. And so you're going to have this whole separation of skill set and, and personality types where the Jedis are going to excel even more in a properly structured remote environment and the B and C players will not. And maybe, and maybe even, even worse, worse is for a lot of companies, the Jedi may go to the employer who will allow them that situation yeah. and the employers that only want their people in the office and won't give them that flexibility, they're only going to be able to attract B and C players. And so companies may crash and burn because the talent they can get is now completely different pay and 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 all these other little things won't matter right ping pong tables and beanbag chairs won't matter anything like uh, can i work from home can well, i work remotely yeah i owned a recruitment company and we did high volume recruitment we made a lot of hires every month and if i had my company today the one thing i would be having my my recruiters do is stress the remote component and the remote structure it's really important it's two different things you can be remote and it's haphazard and it's helter-skelter, or you can be structured. The helter-skelter will attract B and C players. The well-structured will attract the A players. And so you're going to yeah. see a real separation um, going on. And to your point, companies will crash as a result of it. So you and I did a lot of research. We didn't want this book to just be the Kim and Chris, you know, uh, revival of what we did in our companies. We, we talked to a lot of different thought leaders. We did case studies on organizations that went remote or went remote during COVID uh, and brought in a lot of outside ideas and, and thoughts so that we could create the right uh, set of, I guess, examples that wh whoever you are, you could decide which thing you wanted to take and to use it. And, we, and understanding that every remote company is different. But I'm curious, is, was as we went through that process, 
was there something that you learned that you felt like you didn't know or that you wish you had known back when you had your, your company? I'm going to answer it in two different ways because the first thing, what I really learned is that there's a lot of people out there that have better stories than me. And what I loved is you and I told a lot of stories that were all designed to help people navigate obstacles, get their way out of uh, potholes and things like that. And what we did about midway through the book is we started pulling out our stories and approaching people and say, tell us your story. And as a result of that, we've got a, a woman, I mean, one of many stories that we have instead of our story about what we did on a pandemic, we had a woman who is in charge of the recruitment of nurses, the world's largest nurse recruiting company. And she told us the story of how on Monday, she sent 125 recruiters home overnight. And on Tuesday, the state of New York called and said, we need 10,000 nurses. Right. And so what I learned is that if I, if I uh, get the premise of a story, but then go out to people and ask their story, it was, they were way more di dynamic than mine. And so that, that was wonderful. The other part on, of it on, on what I learned is I learned that the writing process can be really fun. We had, we had a really good time with this and it was, <laughs> yeah. and it was kind spirited and, um, and, and, you know, we were looking for ways to help people that might need help. Not right. everyone needs help, but if you need help, hopefully you find it in the pages. And I really liked that you and I struggled with trying to get the message as succinct as possible and as gentle as possible, because we both believe that the better you treat your people, the better they treat their company. Yeah, we got lucky because we went into this process, although we had worked around each other, we never really worked with each other. We were never in the same company or did a, you know, we went on boards together and things. So we were, we had an idea, but it wasn't exactly the same as showing up every week and trying to decide, well, what are we going to write about and what's important and what's not important. And, and that process went really, really well. I think we were, uh, we've heard from other people who've had co-authors and said, I'll never do that again. And I, you and I are like, well, maybe we'll do it again. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a fun time. Well, think about it. We came up with 280 pages and not once did we stretch. Right. Not once right. did we say, well, we need to, you know, fill that in or break that out or expand on that concept. We, we just breezed right through and pretty soon we had 280 pages. And it's yeah. because I hate when I read a book and I have to read 12 pages before I get a punchline. I hate that. I don't have right. any patience. Nobody yeah. wants them to talk around in circles. You're like, just get to the point. And I think that's all of our chapters are here. We're going to get to the point. In fact, we even tell you in the front, <laughs> here right. are the points we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, and we, we, we didn't, we didn't set out to, to tell you what we think. We set out to tell you what we did and what worked and what didn't work. I remember one of the things that I learned that was really, really interesting is when we did our case study on Adam Miller, now the chairman of Cornerstone on Demand, and he talked about how they had to regroup their people based on where they were in their life, more of a generational family structure type setting for a while during COVID. And that was fascinating. We actually went back and replicated some of that to great success. So, you know, people who were single or people who had just maybe a spouse or a, a, a partner, they had different needs and they're having a different experience with the pandemic than people who had children or multi-generational families were having a totally different experience with the pandemic. One, we're stretched out, you know, trying to be part-time teachers, you know, no internet, bandwidth is down, Zoom is killing, you know, people are streaming on Netflix. And the other group was overworking and, and, and bored and stressed out because they were totally isolated, right? And so they regrouped their teams to put those people into predictable patterns so that they could help each other, support each other and lean on each other because they were having the same experience. So I had never thought of it that way. And it was really, really fun for us to take that idea, right? And then turn it into a, what could you do to help be more people centric to your people? Well, and for your audience, I just want to point out that Adam had the foresight to do this while he was acquiring a company that was larger than his company. Yeah. So in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of all this foresight and breaking out the, the generational and, and how, what can I give you to optimize you, which is Jedi way of thinking, right? He's acquiring a company that's larger than him. Yeah. 
it, it was a great story. I think you said that they closed the deal the day California sent told everyone, you know, we're we're on stay home orders. And how do you onboard the new people into a an overnight right. remote situation? Right. Great. Not only onboard them, not only bring them into one organization. Oh, but by the way, now you're all remote as well. Yeah. And that really so. talks to the the case study thing. I mean, we got these amazing case studies of people that. I mean, it blows your mind what they did. And then they were so generous with their time with us to kind of, you know, share their blood, sweat, and tears with us. Really, I think really is the gem of the book, uh, the case studies. So what else do you think uh, the average person picking up that book, what what might they get from what we wrote? Is it is it just for the leader? Is it is it for anyone who's on a team and remote? Is it for the entrepreneur, for the HR person? What do you think the average person should be able to take home with them if they take you know take our book to, to bed with them tonight, you know, and and really devour what we try to put down on the pages? Okay, well, of course I'm biased because <laughs> with you we wrote the book, but I really in in looking back at the book we wrote it to show leaders the right way to do things and what to do to keep an eye on culture and, and finance and, and, and um, roadblocks and train wrecks. And I mean, we really set out to write it for them. However, I've read a lot of books that are geared for the person in a remote environment. And I really think that we've got a lot of nuggets in there for them on what they should expect. If you're a Jedi, Read this book, and if your company are, is not doing are not doing these things, these are the things you should be demanding. If you're attending meetings that start at eleven but actually really start at eleven twelve, they're not a disciple of our book. If there's political correctness in your company, they're not a disciple of our book. You know, there's there's just so many things that that. If I was a Jedi and I picked up that book, that would be my Bible of, you know, if I go looking for a job, you better do these things on, on communication, appreciation, recognition, retention, you know, recruitment, um, how they onboard you day one. That's critical. Right. right. Yeah. And I really hope that people can take away real systematic ways to implement these things. It's not just these are not just ideas. We're not just saying, hey, you should have better meetings. We're telling them exactly how to have better meetings. We're not saying you should have diversity inclusion. We're saying this is how you have diversity of thought. And these are the specific things that you can do if you don't want five people in a room all telling you the exact same thing or coming up with the exact same idea or just agreeing with you, right? We're, we're, our intent was to give everyone a clear roadmap on how to deal with the things because we had to deal with them, right? They were fresh. And then when we went out and talked to other you know, AMM Healthcare and Cornerstone on Demand and then the United States Marine Corps, right? And Buffer and, and all these companies that are doing it all the time. Uh, and, and yes, the Marine Corps does a lot of remote work. That is, that is a big, big part of what they do. Again, illustrating how we pulled ourselves out and pulled in the experts. We got to the section of culture and we said, who, who do we know that can talk to culture? And we got the ex-Supreme Commander of Camp Pendleton, the mm -hmm. Marine Corps, where people buy into that culture and will give their lives. It's probably the most well-defined culture in the world. And we got the guy telling us about it. And I think that's so important because if you can have the real takeaways, then you can have a real intentional outcome at work. You and I have both read books and heard people talk and they can be inspiring and they can get you thinking, but they often don't then give you the solution. They don't often give you the, the thing you should actually do uh, as the idea. They just leave you to go back and figure that or to bring them in for a very heavy consulting fee to do it for you. Right. And so I think that was our intent to make sure we could give people those nuggets and they could do it themselves. And as a final piece, what I'm really, really excited about is that we have a Slack community, remoteworkmovement.slack.com. You can go there to request your uh, to get in there, or you can go to chrisdyer.com slash remote work movement and request to get in there. Because what we want is people to come and be a part of the Slack community and for them to share their wins, their losses, what they decided to do, how they changed it, how they tweaked it, interpreted it, and what they came up with. Because that's really when our journey, right, is to take 
well, it's, it's certainly been my journey to take someone's good idea and just try to make it better. And that's what we want people to do. Take the idea. How do you make it better? How do you iterate it? Yeah. And, you know, I think what's, what's nice is there's a lot of books that you read where you're reading them. I'm going to read this book and they're going to tell me what to do. Our book is really written through the eye of the viewer. It's written, it's as you read it, it's, you're going to take it all personally. And, and whether you've done these things or not, because it's written to be on the journey with us, not to watch us, not to read that, not to, you're going to highlight stuff. You're not necessarily going to take notes. Um, and what's, what's cool about that is um, Chris and I started off, Chris told me a while ago that I am, I was a creator of the rem, of remote because I had no one to follow at the time. No one was doing it. Chris is the ideator. He took what I did. He morphed it to wrap it, to make it better, to make it suit what he needed from that. And then there's implementers. So there's the creators, the ideators, and the implementers. And what we hope when you read the book is you begin to create, ideate, and implement your own thing mm-hmm. off of reading what we did. It's like, no, I'll never be in that situation. However, my goodness, if I take it and do this. And those are the things that we want you to share. And it's really in the spirit of the movie Pay It Forward, which was one of the best movies ever. That, you know, if you, and that's the spirit of what we did with this book. We have learned things. We have gotten black eyes, um, you know, and chipped teeth in, in trying to figure out the remote world when nobody really thought it was a good idea. And so we want to pay it forward. So the price of this book is if you jump in and it grabs you, and even as an employee or an employer, you start coming up with ideas that make what we've done better. You got to go to the Slack room and you got to deposit them there so that it becomes a, a, a moving door because five years from now, I want what's in Slack to far outpace what Chris and I came up with. Absolutely. So again, you can go to remoteworkmovement.slack.com or chrisdyer.com slash remoteworkmovement. Um, and you can check out our book on Amazon or Kogan page or wherever you buy books online, you can find remote work and look up Chris Dyer or Kim Shepard, uh, as the authors. And Kim, thank you so much as always for being a part of the show, for being a part of my life and for us doing this awesome book together it was so much fun. I want this to be six hours long because I just love playing with you. <laughs> thank you so well, much. Thank you. All right. I hope everyone enjoyed today's show and learned so much from these two fantastic people. Make sure you uh, check out uh, the book. Make sure you check for uh, for both uh, David Marquet and uh, for Kim and I. And hopefully you've really gained something you can use in your own career in a positive way. Until next time, until next week, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.